Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, in the scriptures we hear read and proclaim today, speak to us. Give us what we need to be faithful and brave. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today we are continuing the sermon series I've been meaning to ask. Today's question is, what do you need? And our first reading is from the book of Job, chapter 2. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. Now when Job's three friends heard all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home. Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamatite. They met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw Job from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading comes from Paul's second letter to Timothy. Chapter 4, verses 9 through 18. This can be found on page 1086 of your Pew Bibles. Hear now what God has to say to the church. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful in my ministry. I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will pay him back for his deeds. You also must beware of him, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At the very beginning of the book of Job, we meet Job in the prime of his life. He has what most of us aspire to. Good health, a large and loving family, wealth and status in his community. But then, inexplicably, Job loses everything all at once. His family, his wealth, and his good health. In an instant, his life turns upside down. And if you know anything about how Job's friends respond to this tragedy, what you probably know is that they spend a lot of time talking to Job. 
doing their best to give an explanation for what has happened to him. These explanations from Job's friends take up 25 of the 42 chapters in this book. I mean, they are really giving it their all to explain what's happened. But if you've ever stared tragedy in the face and had a well-intentioned person come and try to tell you why it happened, then you know that all the talking and explaining Job's friends tried to do was not particularly helpful. In fact, as Job says to them, it is both deeply unsatisfying and downright insulting, especially because they keep coming back to this conviction that Job must have done something to bring this suffering on himself. Well, if this is all we know or thought we knew about Job's friends, it turns out we don't know the whole story. Because in the passage that Derek read from the second chapter of Job, we discover that when Job's friends first hear what's happened to him, they do exactly what he needs. They go to him. And they weep with him and for him. And they tear their clothes and they throw dust in the air so that it comes down on their heads. They transform their appearance to match Job's transformation. And they sit with him for seven days and seven nights. They do not speak a word. Like Job, they were surely overwhelmed, not just with his suffering, but with humility. They recognize initially that there is nothing they can say to make things better. Nothing they can do except show up and be quiet. Before Job's friends get their response very wrong, they get it exactly right. In his book, The Clown in the Belfry, writer and theologian Frederick Beekner describes a similar experience of having his needs unexpectedly met in a time of grief. He writes, I remember an especially dark time of my life. One of my children was sick, and in my anxiety for her, I was, in my own way, as sick as she was. Then one day the phone rang, and it was a man I didn't know very well then, though he has become a great friend since, a minister from Charlotte, North Carolina, which is about 800 miles or so from where I live in Vermont. I assumed he was calling from home, and I asked him how things were going down there, only to hear him say that no, he wasn't in Charlotte. He was at an inn about 20 minutes from my house. He'd known I was having troubles, he said, and he thought maybe it would be handy to have an extra friend around for a day or two. The reason he didn't tell me in advance that he was coming must have been that he knew I would tell him for heaven's sake not to do anything so crazy. So, for heaven's sake, he did something crazier still, which was to come those 800 miles without telling me he was coming, so that for all he knew, I might not even have been there. But as luck had it, I was there, and for a day or two, he was there with me. He was there for me. I don't think we found to say much to each other, and certainly nothing that had anything particularly religious about it. 
I don't remember even, even spending much time talking about my troubles with him. We just took a couple walks, had a meal or two together, and smoked our pipes. Drove around to see some of the countryside, and that was about it. Beekner concludes, I've never forgotten how he came all that distance just for that. And I'm sure he has never forgotten it either. I also believe that although as far as I can remember, we never so much as mentioned the name of Christ, Christ was as much in the air we breathed those few days as the smoke of our pipes was in the air or the dappled light of the woods we walked through. I believe that for a little time, we both of us touched the hem of Christ's garment. We're both of us, for a little time anyway, healed. Sometimes, like Job's friends and Beekner's acquaintance, in the face of someone's suffering, we will be gifted with the insight and courage to just show up and be present. At other times, maybe after that initial time of being present, it might help to ask a question to guide us in what comes next. What do you need? When we ask this question, we give someone the autonomy to state their needs. And some people are really good at this. The Apostle Paul was apparently one of them. In our passage from 2 Timothy, he articulates his needs clearly and boldly, telling Timothy to come quickly and bring Mark. Oh, and get that cloak he left somewhere and bring his books and above all, his parchments. He had more letters to write. What a gift that specificity can be when we ask, what do you need? The problem is, for some people, what do you need can be a really hard question to answer. I would put myself in that category. As a mom and a pastor, I spend a lot of time trying to anticipate other people's needs. And I've learned that I'm not always very good at knowing what I need. Last year, some major news outlets picked up a story about a question teachers have learned to ask young students when they become emotionally overwhelmed. Do you need to be heard, helped, or hugged? This question acknowledges that when children feel overwhelmed, and I think this holds true for adults as well, having a few simple choices can restore our sense of autonomy and control and lower some of that emotional reactivity. This question also acknowledges that different people have different needs in different situations. There is no right or wrong answer to the question, do you need to be hugged, helped, or heard? When we talked about these scriptures and this question, what do you need, at my weekly Bible study, several people in our group who have been through challenging seasons of illness and caregiving and grief offered us their hard-won wisdom, including how sometimes a more specific question is easier to answer than the open-ended, what do you need? If someone doesn't know what they need, we can ask specific questions like, do you need food? Do you need your house cleaned, your dog walked, your children driven to school, your laundry done, some flowers 
to brighten up your room. One person said they like to ask, is there something I could do for you right now that would help? Someone else shared a text they had recently received that said, I want to help you however I can. Do you want me to guess at what you need? Or do you want to tell me what would help you most? All of these are ways of asking, what do you need? But as Job's friends seem to intuitively understand, before we even get to asking that question, we might start by simply offering the gift of our presence, showing up, asking no questions, making no demands, just being there. In his letter to Timothy, the thing that seems to have upset Paul the most is that, as he writes, no one came to my support, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength. As Beekner experienced when his friend from Charlotte showed up, they did not need to talk about God because the presence of God was as real as the air they breathed. The ministry of presence is an incarnational ministry, a way of being with others in the same way God came to be with us in the person of Jesus, to acknowledge the reality of human suffering and struggle, and to offer presence and compassion and healing. That practice of incarnational ministry, of being present to one another in our pain, that doesn't have to be limited to our family or friends or our church community. Listening and learning to care for each other in times of need builds our capacity for going out beyond our walls and beyond our comfort zones to be God's compassionate presence to a world full of people in need. Pope Francis once described his ideal church as a field hospital a temporary hospital set up at the site of a battle or a natural disaster. The thing the church most needs today, said Francis, is the ability to heal wounds. It needs nearness, proximity. I see the church as a field hospital after battle where it is useless to ask a seriously injured person if he has high cholesterol or to check the level of his blood sugars. You have to heal his wounds. Then we can talk about everything else. Heal the wounds. Heal the wounds. A field hospital is mobile. It's more an event than an institution. And rather than defending its structures or its territory, it goes outside of itself looking for the emergency, for the one in need. Pope Francis says, I prefer a church which is bruised, hurting, and dirty because it has been out on the streets rather than a church which is unhealthy from being confined and from clinging to its own security. To be an incarnational church is to be people who venture out and see the needs of people in our community, people who might never walk through the church doors. But when we do that, we have to resist the temptation to jump to conclusions about what we think they need instead of asking them that very question. 
A friend of mine is a pastor in a church that was working to develop a partnership with a local school, much like we have with three schools here in Richmond. When he and a few elders went to meet with the principal, they told her how much money they had allocated to support the school, and then they asked her what she needed. In response, she said, well, what did you have in mind? Well, we're asking you, he said, because we want to do what would help you. And the truth is, we don't know what that might be. You're the one who's here day after day. You know better than we do what these kids need. The principal was astonished. For years, she said, corporations and churches would come to her with money and ideas about how that money should be spent, rarely, if ever, asking her professional opinion regarding what was needed most. Over the last decade, our outreach council has tried hard to approach our partners in the community with that kind of humility, remembering that they know their needs much better than we ever could. More than anything else, asking that question, what do you need, acknowledges that when it comes to suffering, we do not have to face it alone. To really show up for another person, to be with them, to be present to their pain, this will inevitably connect us with our hurt and pain, with whatever sadness and grief we carry. And as human beings who inevitably will know suffering, what we all need most is something that makes that pain easier to bear. Thankfully, this is the very need God has chosen to meet for all of us. Throughout the biblical narrative, in the promise of the gospel, at the font and at the table, in the ministry and suffering and presence of Christ, God reveals that our suffering is easier to bear when we show up with and for one another, when we bear it together. Amen.